Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, all right, you guys, so she's here right now, so let's give her a very warm round of applause. Lane Mosley. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Skylight. I'm really excited to be here reading, and thank you all for coming. Um, a lot of people ask me, how did you start this crazy project of getting into random taxi cabs and asking drivers about their favorite places to eat? And I have to rewind a little bit and, and tell you why I went to Buenos Aires in the first place, because the project could have only started in Buenos Aires. And I had been working, I'd spent the better part of a decade working toward opening my own restaurant and working my way up the chain from busser to hostess to line cook, only to realize that that was not the path for me. And I had taken a trip to Buenos Aires, and interesting things were going on there with the food scene. The country was just emerging from an economic crisis, and chefs were beginning to turn inward and use ingredients that were from Argentina and not from Europe. So that was something that, that interested me. And the city is one of the most literary cities in South America. It has a great reading culture. I would get on the subway and have people recommend books to me. And this was about the time that I was thinking... I think I want to start writing for real, and I want to do something involving food. And I felt like I didn't quite know what direction I wanted to take all of that in, but I felt like I might be able to find it in Buenos Aires. And one way I d tried to engage with the culture was to dance tango. I knew I was never going to be a professional tango dancer, but I thought it might be a way to dig deeper into the culture and just understand more about where I was. And in the process of dancing tango and going out to these tango clubs late at night, I was taking a lot of taxi cabs and having these conversations with taxi drivers that were teaching me more about the city than anyone else. I was learning more from them than I was learning from anyone else. And at the same time, I was also always searching for something good to eat. So I thought, well, if they know so much about their city, then they must know where to find good things to eat. But I wasn't really brave enough to test this hypothesis until I had a really terrible turn on the dance floor at this very famous tango club. So I'm going to read you what happened after that. And the, the tango club is called um, La Ideal. I hurried away from La Ideal, searching for a taxi. A fall rainstorm was wreaking havoc on the streets of Buenos Aires. And an out-of-season sudestada, the strong icy wind that carried the cold northward from Antarctica, was adding to the usual traffic chaos on Avenida Nueve de Julio. A blast of wind rushed over the sidewalk, dismembering the spokes and my two-peso umbrella, turning it inside out. Really? I wanted to shake my fist at the sky. You're doing this now? My stomach let out a growl that was almost a roar. 
reminding me of the empanadas I had left behind at the tango club. For the first time in weeks, I was starving. I stuffed the umbrella in a trash can, waving at taxi after taxi. They drove on, ignoring me, their Libre lights off, as the water rose to their hubcaps. I had never had trouble finding a taxi in Buenos Aires. On any given day, at any given moment, on practically any street, I barely had to raise my arm, and a cab would stop for me. Not today. Today, the Sudestada had caught the city by surprise, and there wasn't a free taxi in sight. Meanwhile, the pangs in my gut were getting sharper, and my blood sugar was sinking into the danger zone of dizziness and trembling hands and irrational thoughts. I scanned the snack bars on the avenida. No milanesa, no sandwich de miga, no media luna croissant looked the least bit appetizing, and I did not want to eat for the sake of refueling. I hurried past the Hotel Panamericano and its famous and famously expensive restaurant, Tomo Uno, ignoring the menu posted outside the brass door. I was in no mood to be tempted by Patagonian lamb I couldn't afford. Why, oh why, had I let myself get so swept up in tango? Now the bruise was smarting on my backside, and I was getting soaked to the skin. A taxi stopped at a signal a few blocks away. Its Libre light was on, its red glow radiating in the gray afternoon. See me, I thought, raising my hand, wiping the raindrops off my forehead. See me. He was too far away to see me. I stood on my tiptoes, waving my arm. The taxista's headlights flickered. The signal turned green. I felt a manic flash of joy when I realized he was fighting through four lanes of traffic to pick me up. And somewhere in that manic flash of joy, watching the taxista maneuver his way toward me in his bumblebee-colored fiat, I had an idea. An idea that had been percolating in the back of my mind for a while. An idea I hadn't been brave enough to enact until now. It was a crazy idea driven by hunger and the feeling that I had nothing left to lose. I dug around in my purse for my faux wedding ring, a paper-thin gold band that had belonged to my grandma, which I wore from time to time to ward off men. My hand shook as I slipped it on. The taxi stopped. I opened the door, tossing my tango shoes in the back seat, and climbed in. Buenas tardes. I said, wishing I had thought to wring out my hair as the water trickled down my back onto the seat. The taxista turned around. His brown eyes were almond-shaped, rimmed with faint wrinkles, flecked with gold. Buenas tardes. He smiled, open-mouthed, as if he were on the verge of laughter. Where do you want to go? I twisted Grandma's ring with my thumb. I have sort of a weird request. I was trying to prepare him for my question. I was trying to prepare myself, too. 
I looked at the clock on the dashboard. It was after three o'clock already. Lunch was almost over. Senorita, said the taxista, still smiling, where would you like to go? I leaned forward between the front seats, shifting my weight to the unbruised side of my butt, and said, could you take me to your favorite restaurant? The taxista braked in the middle of the avenida. Cars honked and swerved around us, but he didn't seem to care. He switched off the CB radio and turned to stare at me, his eyes confused. I'm hungry, I said, and I don't have a lot of money, and I was hoping you might know a good place that's not too far away. Eh? <laughs> he knit his eyebrows, deepening the crease in the center of his forehead. He hadn't turned on the taxi meter yet. Maybe a place you'd go with your family, I said, for, for example. What kind of food are you looking for? He took his foot off the brake. Nothing fancy. I pressed my palms against the hollow in my stomach. You know, typical stuff. Empanadas, steak. Steak? He smiled. What, what about siga la vaca? Siga la vaca? I had heard the name somewhere. Don't a lot of tourists go there? He steered to the right, coasting next to the gutter. You're right. Everyone knows that place. Let me think. He still hadn't started the meter. A good steak. A good steak. And he did take me to a very good steak. <laughs> the place is called Paria Peña. If you ever go to Buenos Aires, I highly recommend it. To this day, it's still one of the best steaks I've ever had in my life. And it was this little neighborhood steakhouse that maybe I would have found on my own, but it would have taken me a long time. And after that first taxi adventure, I began to get into random taxi cabs every week and ask the drivers to take me to their favorite places to eat. And I began to write about it. And it just, it was a new way to relate to the city. I had been living in Buenos Aires for two years, but I felt this was kind of a new level of, of serendipity that I was tapping into. And to make a long story short, I eventually I ran out of adjectives to describe beef because a lot of, most of the taxi drivers there were wanting to take me to steak places, and I decided to take the project to New York. And I never planned on driving a taxi cab myself, but I met two women uh, cab drivers in New York who convinced me that it was time to step up and step in and take my, take my experiment to the next level. And I had studied anthropology, and one of the principles of anthropology is that if, if you're observing a culture, you can only understand so much. At some point, you have to participate in that culture. So I began to, I got my yellow cab license and began driving a taxi cab. And one of the things that was very apparent from the get-go were, was that there were a lot of tango metaphors that were applicable in the taxi. So I'd like to read you just a snippet of, of from one of my early taxi shifts where I'm leaving the taxi garage, which is called Team. If I can find it, ah, here. It was still dark when I pulled out of the team parking lot. I pressed play on the CD player, 
grateful that this cab had a CD player, and out came the foreboding sounds of Astor Piazzolla's Buenos Aires Zero Hour. The tango was a perfect match for the industrial desolation of Long Island City before dawn. I followed the other cabs down 31st Street. Their taillights bled into the crystalline air. We were the only cars on the road. I drove as they drove, slowing down and easing the taxi over the axle-splitting potholes at the entrance to the Queensboro Bridge, trying to adjust my body to the Crown Victoria, which was a lot like feeling out a new partner at the beginning of a tango. How sensitive were the brakes? How responsive the accelerator? Which way did the steering wheel tilt? How far did I sink into the springs in the driver's seat? In the tango clubs, early on, even at the toothless milongas, terrified of making a mistake on the floor, I would refuse to look up, to meet anyone's eyes, and risk an invitation to dance. Ivos, and you, said the men who would approach my table, glancing at my tango shoes. Bailas o no? Do you dance or not? In the taxi on those first two shifts, I'd done the same thing, passing so many potential passengers, refusing to stop for anyone who looked the least bit frantic. As long as I was a neophyte, the most frightening passenger was the passenger in a hurry. Today will be different, I vowed, inhaling the artificial sweetness of the Christmas tree air freshener on the rearview mirror, which was no match for the odors the Saturday night passengers had left behind. The cab absorbed their cologne, their booze, their cigarette smoke, mixing, mixing them with the sweat of the driver before me and the acrid smell of my own fear. Hello, terror. Hello, disorientation, I thought pulling off the Queensboro Bridge and turning left onto 2nd Avenue. Let's go for a ride. So I never really lost the sense of fear when I was driving the taxi, but it became a kind of a negotiation with fear. The fear never went away, but we developed a, an intimate relationship. <laughs> and... I was never, I never, I didn't do it really long enough to get good at it, but I was, I'm really glad that I did do it because I met a lot of people that I probably wouldn't have crossed paths with otherwise. And it also drove me to, to look for something new, for look, to look for something that was still, still missing in this, in this taxi project. And one day after a particularly, in the middle of a particularly terrible shift, I was taking a break at the New York Public Library, which was my refuge in New York City. I loved going there, and especially I loved going in the travel section. And I found this one old Lonely Planet from 2006 that then turned to the section on taxis, which said that the taxi drivers in Berlin know as much about Nietzsche as they do about sausage. And I thought, well, that sounds very intriguing. <laughs> I would like to test out that hypothesis. <laughs> and I did a, a Kickstarter campaign and to do a series of taxi adventures in Germany, among other things, to test this hypothesis. And I also like the idea of doing... Um, 
doing the project in a city that's not known for food. I thought that would be I thought that would be interesting. And as soon as I landed in Berlin, things began to unfold just so easily and so effortlessly. And I met taxi drivers who drove the taxi part-time and were homeopaths part-time. I met taxi drivers who spent winters in Brazil painting and summers in Berlin driving the taxi. And it was just, I was falling in love with the city and really inspired by the taxi drivers I was meeting. And they were taking me to really good places to eat. <laughs> Surprisingly, I was, I was eating Italian food from Basilicata. I was learning all about different regional specialties of Turkish food, which, was, which I love. And Vietnamese food too, since there's a big Vietnamese population in Berlin. So that was a pleasant surprise. And things started to unfold also as far as people were finding out about my project and wanting to come along on taxi adventures with me. And on one particular taxi adventure, journalists had ridden along with me in the cab, and we ended up at this Argentine restaurant in former East Berlin, uh, eating sort of an approximation of Argentine steak, which I thought was really poetic. And we ended up, we were talking about our cab driver, and this journalist described him as a, a Lebenskunstler. And I, I said, well, what, what does that mean? What is, what is a Lebenskunstler? And she said, well, it's sort of, there's no, it's like a life artist. I'm not really sure how to explain it to you, but I was really intrigued by this idea, and I, I wanted to learn more. So what I'm, I'm just going to read you a snippet from the aftermath of this meal at this Argentine restaurant called La Bandida in former East Berlin. I hurried from La Bandida back to the apartment, dropping my purse on the futon, kicking off my sandals, opening my laptop and willing it to wake up quickly so I could start researching the word. Verena was right. There was no equivalent for Lebenskunstler in English. The clubs on Revalastraza were warming up for the night as I sat at my computer, oblivious to the hour, sifting through every Lebenskunstler definition I could find, as if searching for the solution to a riddle I hadn't realized I'd been grappling with until now. Most of the explanations didn't seem to do justice to the word as Verena had described it. A Lebenskunstler, read one German-to-English glossary translation, is a chilled-out dude. <laughs> a British literature and culture scholar named Kelly Sear Smith included the word on a list of compounds and curiosities in German. A Lebenskunstler, she noted, was a life artist who manages to get his living in an eccentric way. Think of Kramer on Seinfeld. <laughs> After midnight, I glanced at the clock when I heard deep house music coming from somewhere downstairs. As the walls of the apartment began to reverberate, I finally found a Lebenskunstler definition that seemed to fit Thomas, our taxi driver. Oscar Wilde once purportedly said, I put my talent into my work, but my genius into my life, wrote Andrew Hamill on his German Word of the Week site. A suitable introduction to this week's entry Lebenskunstler. Literally translated, it means life artist. He is a Lebenskunstler. Someone who pieces together his living from various activities that collectively bring in just enough money to live. No office, no suit, no boss, 
No rules. Yes. I read it again. No office, no suit, no boss, no rules. Here was a single German word that summed up Thomas's freedom-driven approach to life. Here was a word, I thought, as I copied the definition into my notebook, that implied that there was nothing wrong with trading security for freedom, with opting out of the nine-to-five, with driving the cab, and working for the crazy Argentine satellite company, and keeping up the taxi adventures, even if it meant eating a lot of garbanzo beans. I felt as if I'd been walking around for the past five years with an undiagnosed malady, and now someone was telling me, no, in fact, you're not ill at all. Here in Berlin, we have a word for your condition, which, by the way, is perfectly normal. The word is Lebenskunstler. Thanks. So the last bit I'm going to read you is uh, <laughs> is came a couple of weeks before I left Berlin that first summer. I got a very, as I said, word was getting around about my taxi project, and I got an interesting, charming, odd, strange email from a taxi driver who described himself as a little gourmet and offered to take me on a food tour of the city, especially because I hadn't tasted any German food yet. And, and I had to taste German food. That's why I was in Berlin. Why was I tasting all this Turkish food and Vietnamese food? What was I doing? And so I agreed to meet this odd but charming-sounding taxi driver for a food tour. And I'm going to read you the first, the first leg of our, of our tour. German food is today's highlight for you, said Ruman, steering the taxi through the traffic on Frankfurter Allee as though slaloming around the cones in a sports car commercial. Oh, really? I thought Asian was your favorite. We are in Germany, and so you have to know the German food. It's a must. He moved his whole body when he spoke, as if the seat weren't big enough to contain him. Well, okay, I pushed a strand of hair out of my eye, regretting that I hadn't put more effort into fixing my hair that morning. This is cool, because I've been on a lot of, well, not a lot, but some taxi adventures in Berlin, and none of the cabbies have really shown me any German food yet. My face was still warm. I will show you something unique in German food, woman grinned. You never would find, you never will find, and maybe this, especially this restaurant, will not exist for a long time. It's new? No, it's luck, because it's, um, it, it still exists from the socialist time, this restaurant, and it's for poor people. But the food, or the meals, are okay. And it's at a very central place, close to the Alexanderplatz, and I don't know how they can exist by these prices and by these clients. Is the food good? Of course, he nodded. It's 100% German. <laughs> he giggled, an impish, high-pitched giggle that seemed totally out of sync with the heft of his body and voice. And, he paused, you have to try the dead grandma. 
what is dead grandma? You will see. <laughs> Usually, he parallel parked the taxi on Karl Liebknechtstrasse with three turns of the wheel. I eat German food only at my mother. He turned off the ignition. She is born in Berlin, in Neukölln. Later, we moved to a village in East Germany. We climbed out of the cab, gazing up at the TV tower as we, as we followed room into the restaurant. There was a brown and yellow sign in old German script over the entrance. Käsekönig, it was called. Cheese King, I said, looking up at the sign. Or the king's cheese. I'm not sure, he said. Anyway, it's not so important. <laughs> we went inside, inhaling the scent of caraway seeds and eyeing the steam table buffet behind the counter, which contained an assortment of unidentifiable purees and hotel pans in overcooked shades of green and brown. Ruman rubbed his hands together and greeted the woman at the cash register, who smiled at him like a willing accomplice as he ordered one plate of tota oma dead grandma, for us to share. This is very interesting, he said, handing me a corningware plate with boiled potatoes, sauerkraut, with caraway, and the pièce de résistance, a puddle of lumpy brown-pink mush surrounded by a ring of red-orange oil. <laughs> I just learned that dead grandma has another name, he pointed at the mush. You can also call it Katastrophe. He put his... You speak German. <laughs> he put his hands on his hips, leaned his head back, and let loose a thunderous guffaw. There were a few elderly customers in the cafeteria, and they looked up from their lunches, surprised by the volume of his laugh. Catastrophe? I was laughing too. What's in it, I said. Wait. Never mind, I don't want to know. <laughs> it's blutwurst, said Ruman, and leberwurst, a mix. Blood sausage and liverwurst? Genau. He nodded, passing us forks and stepping away from the table. Hey, where are you going? I have to check the taxi, he said. Maybe I could get a parking ticket. Don't worry, I will wait for you outside. Guten Appetit. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. So, it was the dead grandma was better than I thought, and it, it's better than it sounds. I thought you maybe you've tasted it. I did. It was very surprising myself. I never thought I would eat blood sausage. Good thing I didn't deliver. Yeah. I'd be happy to take. Questions? If anyone has questions, any other questions? Oh, did you ever get sick on these trips? <laughs> I never got sick, not one time. I've only had food poisoning twice in my life. Once was in New York, and once was in San Francisco, and this was way before the taxi adventures. Really? Yes. <laughs> That's I wish. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be the logical.
continuation of this project is to get invited into people's homes and eat home cooking because I think as much as I love to go to restaurants, I think home cooking is, it's the pinnacle. It doesn't get better than home cooking. Actually, I was in Seattle yesterday and I tried to finagle an invitation from my driver who was from Ethiopia. He said he drives six days a week on Tuesdays, he cooks, and he invites all his friends over, and he does the Ethiopian coffee ceremony. And I said, wow, I know a lot of people who would really enjoy coming to your house and tasting your food, and they would pay you money, too. And he said, I'm not interested in this at all. So, but it would be an interesting, it would be a great thing to pursue. How would you Oh, Turkish food. Well, it's as complex as Mexican food. I mean, you know, Mexican food is, is regional and it has their dishes that are specific to every region and Turkish food is just the same. I mean, they're... Yeah, rice and they love lamb and but they really know how to treat a vegetable. And I mean, they're always fresh vegetables, uh, onions, tomatoes, cucumbers, and then they use a lot of sumac, this sort of lemony, um, tangy spice, which really just wakes everything up. I I really developed an appreciation for Turkish food in Berlin. When I was driving, I got a lot of recommendations from passengers because people in New York are so sophisticated when it comes to food, it's frightening. So it, almost every shift I would get a recommendation from a passenger. And instead of uh, sort of trying to make money for myself in the taxi, I found it more interesting to chase up the recommendations of, the, of my passengers and see if they were any good. And I was writing about those too. And then at the same time, even though I was driving the cab, I was still keeping up with the taxi adventures. And I really enjoyed being able to do it and get into a taxi and say, hey, guess what? We're colleagues. And that changed, that shifted the, the interactions because it became less an interview and more a conversation. What, uh, oh, sorry. What type of uh, spice palettes are, are better from different countries? From Turkish food to German food? What's the spice palette like? Who's spicier? Oh. Well, German food is not spicy. It's uh, German food. I tell people it's food that really knocks you on your butt. It's 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 food for farmers. It's pe food for people who've been working in the fields all day and they just need something to to build up a layer of of fat and protection against the weather. So you have lots of potatoes, lots of sauerkraut, lots of sausage, um, heavy sauces. It is heavy, though in the south it can get lighter and there and and it can get a little more, I guess you could say, refined. But Turkish food, they're they're using as I said the the sumac and then garlic and then onions a lot of aromatics so that's more what I lean toward just that's my natural inclination because I feel like that just appeals to my palate more but there are merits and wonderful things about German food too and one thing I really like about German food is that it is very seasonal for example you cannot get kale right now in Germany kale comes after the first frost and they really do respect the seasons and when rhubarb season comes, people get really excited because it's finite. You can't get that. You can't get rhubarb year-round. And that's something, I think, at least growing up in California, that's something that I, I didn't really have any sense of. And I developed that appreciation more when I moved to Germany. 
Oh, I was in, let's see, in, I was in Buenos Aires for four years, and I did the taxi adventures for two of those four years, and then in New York for a year and a half, and then in Berlin, I've lived there since April of 2011. So I started it back in 2007. May 20th, 2007 was the day I went to Parilla Peña for that stake, and I celebrate that day every year. In Argentina, I could I could get into a cab and say, "Please take me to your favorite restaurant." And like as happened on this first adventure, they would be disoriented for maybe for in, in, initially, but then they'd say, "I got it. I know where I can take you." In New York, that did not work at all. I could not get into a taxi without a destination in New York City. That was preposterous. So I had to develop a different approach and after getting turned down a lot and actually getting kicked out of taxis um, because I didn't have, I didn't know where I wanted to go, I, I figured, okay, I'm going to give the cabbie a fake destination that's 40 blocks straight shot from wherever he or she picks me up. And we'll get to talking, and I would slip in the question about food because food, asking someone about their food is intimate. And you can't just, I mean, even if I went back to Argentina or when I go back to Argentina, I wouldn't just get into a taxi and say, take me to your favorite place to eat. I think it's, it's more fun, and there's more suspense involved when it just comes, develops naturally in the conversation with the cab driver. I could just, anything, starch, starch on starch. Um, I, that's, yeah, there's this thing in, that they do in Buenos Aires. It's called fugazeta. It's like focaccia, but with cheese and onions. And then they put this thing called faina on top, which is this garbanzo bean sort of, it's like a tortilla, but it's thick. They put that on top of this fugazeta. So it's like this garbanzo bean thing on top of this pizza Start on starch. That's just, it's like a caress to the stomach. <laughs> so, when you first went to Argentina, you had been in the Bay Area, sort of looking at this whole idea of being in a restaurant or whatever. So, where are you now? Do you still see doing something like that in the future? Or do you feel like, you know, you did that and you're on a different track now? You mean opening a restaurant? Yes. No, I will never open a restaurant. <laughs> Sadly, I, the, there's a special temperament of people who run restaurants and who work in restaurants. They are really good in a crisis, and they know how to prioritize. I am neither of those. I need to step back and reflect and think about things, and I watched people when I was working in the business. The crazier it got, the more out of control, the better they got. It was like watching a basketball player in the zone or a dancer who's just, who's just in another realm. And I looked at them and realized, this is not me. And I'm, but I'm really grateful that I went through all of that because I think it's good to write about food 
having had that exposure to the restaurant industry and knowing how it all works behind the scenes, having that empathy really, it helps. It adds another dimension to, to the writing. So I'm really glad I did it, even though it was quite painful at the time. And I deeply admire people who run, own, work in restaurants. So there's the big food truck phrase going on here. I don't, is there anything like that in other places that you get taken to the food trucks or little, little mobile or pop-up food places? Food trucks are now all over the world. There's even a food truck movement in Berlin. But they're basically just copying New York and uh, or in LA and Portland, actually, I should say. I think it all started in Portland, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the taxi drivers would take me to sort of the predecessors of the food truck, like the guys who were already, who had been selling things on the street for years before this whole food truck craze kind of came into, got so trendy and got to be so, came into vogue. Um, like in New York, I had a cab driver take me to this place, just a street cart that's run by a man who worked, used to work at the Russian Tea Room as a chef, and he makes this lamb over rice with this crazy, wonderful green chili sauce. It costs $8. And he's been doing it for years, and before all of these food trucks kind of came on to the scene. So that's the kind of thing that taxi drivers would, would show me. Did you study tango in Argentina? Yes, I studied in, in Argentina. I didn't, I mean, I, I watched the Latin ballroom dance championships on PBS as a kid and was just always so fascinated by, I mean, they have the salsa and the samba and the paso doble, but the tango was always the most beautiful, the craziest, the most melancholy and dark, and the, I was always fascinated by it. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to Buenos Aires. I can finally follow up on this fascination. And it was a, it's a wonderful place to study. Of course, it's the best place to study. Do you still dance? No. I don't dance uh, anymore. Uh, the shoes destroyed my feet. <laughs> but the, the metaphors are still really alive in, in my writing. And, and it is the most psychological dance of all. And I think there's, there's still, and actually I have a, a friend who teaches tango who's a really gifted tango teacher and he wants to write a book about his te teaching methods and I'm probably going to help him with that. So what's your next project? <laughs> <laughs> My next project, well, um, this taxi driver who took me to this uh, questionable dead grandma dish, I ended up marrying him. <laughs> And, and he's he's half Bulgarian, and we every year we go to Bulgaria, and the food in Bulgaria is wonderful, and I think and also Bulgaria it's like stepping into another universe, and I think a lot of people don't really have Bulgaria on their radar screens, so I, I'd be interested in doing some writing related to Bulgaria, food and otherwise. You had a question. What was my favorite place that I traveled? Mm. Well, I think it has to be Berlin because it's the only place that I landed where I thought, within a couple of days, I thought, I never want to leave this place. And usually when I went to a city, I would land somewhere and 
I don't know if you've had this experience where you look around and you think, oh, this is pretty cool. I could hang out here for a while. But I had never had the feeling that I wanted to stay somewhere forever. And that's what happened when I went to Berlin. Well, the whole Lebenskunstler phenomenon and that paradigm, I mean, that idea, it was like an articulation of something I had felt but hadn't really found a word for. So that was kind of the culmination. But it was the free-spiritedness of the city. There's really an art-for-art's sake kind of vibe. Like, people don't care if you're making money from your art. If you're doing something interesting, they're excited about it. They want to learn more about it. And... I really had the sense when I got to Berlin that anything was possible. And I know that Berlin in the 90s, in the Berlin of the 90s, as my husband says, that was really the feeling that pervaded Berlin, that anything was possible. And that has changed and shifted and kind of decreased because the city is becoming more like other cities. But I still felt that. And I'll give you an example. There's a, every Sunday, the flea market scene. Have you spent time in Berlin? Okay, so you know probably about the flea market scene, how big the flea market scene there is. Okay. Um, anyway, one, the, one of the most popular flea markets, there's a karaoke there's an Irishman who works as a bike messenger who also does this karaoke party. And he invites people to come and sing karaoke. And it's hugely popular. And people of all levels of talent uh, come and sing. And the audience at this karaoke is just, there is no irony in their enthusiasm. It's just pure support. No matter what you're doing, people are going to applaud you. And I just thought, I mean, I had never, I had never felt that in any other place that I had been. And that really, I just, I just fell in love with that. Welcome. Hi. Hmm, I, I wouldn't say there were too many similarities between Berlin and Buenos Aires. No, no. Um, Buenos Aires, as you know, is, is by nature a turbulent and chaotic place. Um, there's a certain amount of edge. I guess maybe the, the main similarity is there is an edge. There is an edge in Buenos Aires. You have to pay attention. You have to hold on to your purse. You have to, you have to look around. You can't zone out when you're walking down the street. You have to be aware. Um, there is an edge in Berlin too, but it's a different kind of edge. The edge is that you could do kind of crazy, dangerous things if you wanted to. All of that is available to you in this city. But it's not something where you have to walk around thinking about mm, crime or insecurity. But it's a very orderly place. Buenos Aires is by nature disorderly. So, but there is beauty in both. My favorite kind of food. Well, I'll tell you about one of my favorite, all-time favorite taxi driver recommendations, which is not in Buenos Aires, Berlin, or New York. It's in Rome. 
And this lady taxi driver recommended this seafood place in Rome. It's not where it's not in the center of the city. You have to go a little bit outside. And the man who owns this restaurant is a fisherman or was a fisherman, and his family has their own fishing boat. And they catch the fish every day and bring the fish to the restaurant. And then he figures out what he's going to do with this fish. And when you walk in, you sit down, and he just starts bringing you plates of food. And you don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be whatever he pulled out of the ocean the day, that day or the day before. And it's called La Frachetta del Pesce. And, when, and whenever I go to Rome, if I only had 24 hours in Rome or 12 hours in Rome, that is the place that I would go. Since you like that experience, since you were just up in Seattle, the next time you go there, I wish I could remember the name of the restaurant owned by Italian. Uh huh. Moved down to that. Have a serious name and sit down. It's like chat with a little bit. There's no menu. Mm. Whatever, you know, at least about the Maybe I'll try to find out what the name of it is. Italian Seattle Seafood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Even though you don't run a restaurant, you obviously like to eat. Do you enjoy cooking? I love to cook. Yeah, I grew up in a family. I mean, food is joy. And I started to cook strange things from a young age. Mom had me packing my lunch when I was seven years old so to make sure that I would eat whatever I was taking to school. And my dad used to take me to these food shows. I don't know if you ever listened to Jackie Olden on the radio, but um, she had this cooking show on the radio. And she used to sponsor these food shows. And my dad would take me to these food shows where people were doing like interesting things with Vegemite. And I just, I don't know, I just like to experiment. The kitchen has always been kind of a free therapeutic space. So I, I love to cook. And I like to travel and find different flavors and kind of incorporate them into the things that I'm cooking. Like in Bulgaria, I found this spice called chubritsa, which I had never tasted anywhere, and that was so exciting. It's just this mix of summer savory and thyme, and um, this you can use it in stews, you can put it on your toast, It's just, but it's a flavor that I had never found anywhere else. So I just, I love when I come across something like that. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.